I'm Jason. And I'm Maddie. And this is Making Sense of Chaos. So, William, um, thank you for um, giving some time up in your day to have a chat with us. Um, The first thing sort of I wanted to ask is um, a little bit about yourself. Um, But before I do that, just wanted to sort of mention my background. So we've got some sort of interplay and where we go from here. Um, I've been uh, sort of in WA Police and Victoria Police um, and been part of a few different um, domestic violence teams over the year, over the years, and also worked um, at, at Parkville at one point in my life. Mm. Um, so when Maddie mentioned that you were coming on and I looked at your sort of background, um, got quite excited around sort of hearing your experiences and your learnings over a very long career. So um, yeah, if you could sort of let the audience know a little bit about you, a little bit about your philosophy and, and, from, and go from there. Uh, okay. Uh, so I've been a psychologist for just over 20 years now. Um, uh, prior to that, I was doing a whole bunch of hospitality jobs and I was a bit sort of lost and did a work with a bit of a disability um, uh, and, and found it fascinating how people with an intellectual disability were treated with such um, care, and con- care and concern until they'd done some sort of some behaviour, a problem, harmful behaviours. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't understand the thing that grasped me about it is is if we are very careful and caring towards people, but then they do these harmful behaviours, we're stopping care to them, what changes in ourselves? And so that got me to work within the forensic field. That wasn't really my initial interest, but I found that um, sort of juxtaposition quite sort of jarring, but also fascinating is, is, you know, how it affects us as people. So I started working with the sex offender programmes back in the early 2000s when it just sort of started out um, running programmes, became... Uh, sort of team leader there, um, run programs out of prisons for five or six years, uh, went to England, uh, had sort of had to have a break because that was quite ex- exhausting work, fatiguing work, and went to England for a couple of years to work at King's College, doing research into um, reactive and instrumental violence where we were looking at brain scans um, in regards to the, uh, the potential for uh, psychopathy um around the amygdala harm to the remedia or harm to the frontal lobe so we did that i did that for a couple of years uh, then came back to australia private practice for a few years and then worked with intellectually disabled offenders uh for about four years while holding a private practice uh, then i did five years work for the police working with the um members and the members uh, and trauma reactions obviously and crisis and critical incidents and training at the academy um, and then I did a year at family violence which was a newly um, promoted program 2017 2018 I can't remember the exact dates but um, and then did that for uh, a year did a contract there working with doing training at the academy about how to best work with when you're interviewing offenders yeah. it was a program designed by a guy called Patrick Tidmarsh um and i also did work with developing uh, we were reviewing the processes of why when when you look at sex offending within uh most states why there is such a low report to conviction rate like it's like 95 percent of reports won't get any further almost i think it's one and a half percent get to to court and with you know 
very minor lot even end up in prison so we were looking at what were the what were the issues that stand in the way whether it was attitudinal to do with the police's um opinion you know of how they view sexual offenses in general it was fear of people reporting it it was you know the idea that it's a low conviction rate so people would just see what's the point anyway you know embarrassment shame mental health drug and alcohol victim blaming whatever it was so i did that for a year um and then um since I did a year working for um, in a prison doing drug and alcohol programs, but due to family issues, it was working in prison just didn't work for me anymore. And um, I since now work for an organisation called Ozchild, which is a family therapeutic program for the last three years. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So massive history of different kinds of work. Mm. Uh, what, what was interesting to me, William, when you were saying about those brain scans. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is actually something I was talking about just before with Jace, yeah. is that question around, you know, if, if we're in the right circumstances, um, are we capable of the same behaviour that leads some people to, to prison? You know, is, is it a matter of biology mm. or is it a matter of circumstance? It's the the inevitable nature nurture debate for mm. about the whole of psychology. So I would suggest that there are certain historical facets, whether they be neuro neurological, whether they be in um, environmentally caused, uh, which give us the predilection of that likelihood, and then the environmental factors overlay that as either magnifying or protective. So there, there is no doubt that there are certain um, brain pathways or, uh, you know, cognitions, um, um, thinking styles, which add to this, which add to the likelihood of offending, but also that not everybody who has those sort of styles of thinking goes on offence. So you need, one of my old supervisors used to say, think of it as the stars aligning. Everything has to align for people to offend because most people know what they're doing is at that time illegal. Why? Because they don't tell their mates about it just beforehand. I've got a date with a five-year-old girl. What do you think? Should we meet for a pub for a drink? You know, no one's talking about that stuff. Um, I'm thinking about going down um, and robbing somebody. You know, why don't you tell, you know, put it on social media, tell everyone, tell all your mates about it. You know, the unsophisticated people might do that by accident, but the majority of people tend to do it for, um, do it quite brazenly and not think anything of it. Um, But they're aware it's wrong. Nobody says, did you know that breaking into that person's house and stealing their car was illegal? Oh, I, I didn't know that. That's a good point. I never thought of that that way. So we, 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 therefore, we have designed thinking patterns and schemas, lenses on the world, which allow us to jump over barriers we know, which, is, uh, which are doing harmful behaviours, which is really what I find the most interesting part of the whole field. Mm-hmm. Why are people who, who don't offend every minute of every single day suddenly find this time at that point the most appropriate time to do it. Mm. So they, they leap the moral compass. They, they skip a step. They ignore the factors or they, by omission, so they ignore and avoid it, or by commission, they say, I don't care. They mm. um, ignore or jump over them. So if you were to bring it out of the criminal world and say, how do people smoke cigarettes, overeat, go to the gym too much, have affairs, gamble and do harmful behaviours, and you would talk to them about it, they're not going, they're, they're generally going, it's not so bad, I think it's okay, um, only do it a bit, it's not that harmful. And so they minimise the harm it does to themselves or the community. 
to mm. justify the extended belief. If you talk to anyone about why they speed, nobody says, I didn't know the speeding, you know, was, was 60 kilometres. They go, oh, the, the rules need to be different. You know, this car's designed to go faster. I can't see it at 60K. It's not designed. These boots are really heavy. The cars behind me were going too fast. What do you expect me to do? And if you think of that, that, that those, what we call maladaptive thinking or um, um, thinking errors, cognitive distortions in the forensic field, that they allow us to do behaviours that we know are inherently wrong. They justify it. The reason we justify it is we have to say them. We, we think that way. Otherwise, we just do it. If you go to the doctor and he says, are you drinking? Are you taking recreational drugs? Are you eating too much? No, 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 no. Why? He's not paid commission if you're being good. Because we don't, we, we're afraid of shame. We're afraid of judgment. We don't want to be disconnected. We don't, we like to think of ourselves as inherently good people. And saying these things out loud is, creates dissonance. We're not always inherently good. Sometimes we make really bad choices. And if you take that and expand that to the forensic field, it's just an expansion of that. Mm. So has everyone got the capacity, say, sexual abuse, to sexually abuse a child, for example? Has everyone got the capacity somewhere? Has anyone got, everyone got the capacity to sexually abuse a child? Yeah. I mean, do they have the physical ability? Mm. Well, I think anyone has the... I've got the physical ability to grab a child and do that, but mm. I have also a huge amount of understanding, as the majority of the community has, that they follow as ones are social contracts, which are apparent within the community, which is, mm. it's incredibly harmful. Secondly, that not only the community understand that, but we ethically and morally understand that any sexual activity with a child is going to hurt them physically, mm. emotionally, um, and create um, you know horrendous effects in them. So I think that's that's very woven into the social fabric. Mm. 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 So to, to say to someone, does anyone have the ability to? They physically have the ability, but they have a huge amount of internal. Um, uh, understanding of the world, which of course would stand in the way. Right, right. So the gains, the sexual gains of doing that, say you were just totally driven by sexual activity. Mm. So the, the gains from that would be far overweighed by the harm you'd be doing. Who's going to talk to me? I'm going to go to prison. I'm going to be on the sex offender register. Um, the police are going to come around there. So I'm going to feel incredibly guilty afterwards. Who's, who's going to ever want to be with me again? Uh, how, how do I live myself? It's a, you know, it's a huge social, um, uh, faux, not faux pas, that's terrible, uh, absolute none, you know, there's, there's no justification for it. So. so would you say you have to be at a pretty low place in your life in order for those cons to outweigh the pros? I think all, I think all negative behaviours uh, or harmful behaviours usually happen when you feel there's no other way out and you're searching for what we call maladaptive strategies to meet our needs. So, um, so you, it doesn't mean people who are, it doesn't mean that people aren't high functioning, uh, intellectually can't offend. And we know that the majority of sexual offending, for example, is done intrafamilially stepdads, uncles, you know, dad against the daughter, let's say that, you know, the traditional, you know, what was known of that. So that, but there has to be a whole bunch of factors that add to that because not all people who are stepdads or uncles or dads offend against their young mm -hmm. children. So uh, these can include things like their own abuse, neglect, misunderstanding and inability to look at these relationships as what they are, um, a sense of I want connection, but I can't get them with adults because adults are difficult to deal with and they argue back. Women reject me. Kids understand me. I have control in this and I've got no other status in my life. 
So there's a lot of internal stuff going on, which can draw people to then start thinking about this as an opportunity or, uh, you know, a choice in life. But then you have to get over the fact that it's illegal, that you know as well. And then you have to go, not only is it not okay, and I'm thinking it's okay, but then you've probably got to be ashamed and embarrassed about how you feel about it. And then you don't want to tell anyone because if you tell anyone that breaks the bubble that this is okay. So then I have to go online or find other things that people who agree with me and then, then I can reinforce that. Mm. Mm. It's, there's a, if there's a functional use behind the abuse, so w- whether it's sort of going online to, to survey um, like-minded yep. people, um, what what is the function? What what, what you know you've, you've obviously learned over the, over the years that there is protective factors or functioning and behind it. What are some of those? The functional behavior. So the maladapt. So the maladaptives strategies they use are to try and make them feel feel something. So that could be attractive, connected, important, high status, in control. It could reduce their anxiety because they somehow have total control over this environment. Kids can't vote. Kids can't have jobs. They can't just go, I've had enough of it and we're moving with another family. So, so it may meet those sort of needs with them. It may be that um, uh, uh, that they, they've created over years and using of things like child pornography or um, pitched or stories of that, that they've created a deviance and interest and now they want to, to play it out. But I can, most of the people I ever treated who did then, they, almost none of them said, after I did the offence, I felt good. I felt nothing but shame. Right. So what happens is you get this thing is I've lost, like think of gambling. I've lost all my money. How do I get my money back or feel better about myself? I'll go gambling again. Yeah. The child didn't play out because the fantasy people have about the sexual abuse is much more, you know, the child enjoys it or they act in a way or the, the, the woman acts in a way that's totally different to what they want to believe. They still want to believe they're good people or that they, um, uh, you know, they're not doing anything harmful because they've told themselves that to justify the behavior in the first place. So then if the child doesn't enjoy it or says nothing or does nothing or freezes like most of them do, then, and they're not enjoying it or they're not vocalising or body language enjoyment, then your fantasy hasn't been fulfilled. Mm. Then it's incredible shame, embarrassment. Oh, how do I feel better about myself? Well, that made me feel slightly better. I'll start fantasising about that again. Yeah. And who do I tell about it? Because if I tell somebody, they go to prison. So I don't tell anyone. So what yeah. do I do about it? I'll keep it in my head. Oh, what does that do? So, and so the cycles continue. So do you think it's almost that, that sense that, they're not getting exactly what their fantasy is dictating. So that's almost a reinforcing factor in itself to keep coming back. And Yeah. But they're not only not getting their fantasy made or not in the, they didn't think what, what they thought was going to happen didn't happen, but then they felt incredible shame and guilt afterwards. Yeah, right. Um, and, and those sort of um, universal human needs that you were talking about before, identity, um, intimacy, sexuality, we all have them, right? Yep. And we're we're meeting them in other ways. Um, mm-hmm. What what sort of the missing puzzle piece that causes one to meet those needs in a way that is, you know, maladaptive, as you say? Then you're into the stars aligning stuff, and then that you you know, if you look at all the risk fact, if you look at the risk factor struct uh, the structured interviews, they will say stuff like you're more likely to offend if you have unmanaged mental illness. Um, you know, if you've got um, a history of offending in general, antisociality, um, if you, you know, dropped out of school, if you're low socioeconomic, mm. you know, so there are, there are inherent risk factors around those things about your general behaviour, which can 
mean that you start to find maladaptive or gain maladaptive ways to be able to meet those needs. And for people who don't have any of the antisociality, it's it's usually that they, um, well, usually these are all anecdotal stuff, but certainly the research is that disconnection. You know, I'm nothing. My wife doesn't understand me. Um, I don't feel loved or cared for anymore. I don't feel validated. But when I'm with my children, I'm with other people's children and they smile and they talk to me and I feel good about myself. Well, what's wrong with that? And then you go to the next level. The question is, is that's, that is part of normal thing. I, I enjoy being around my kids and my friends. I like being around my friends' kids and I have a good time. But I wouldn't have go to, I'm feeling good about this. Therefore, if I sexualize it, I'll feel better. What I do is I'm having a really good time. If I was to sexualize it, it would be incredibly harmful and damaging. Not only would I not feel better about myself, but I'd actually harm everything on, and myself around. Mm. So, and you mentioned anti-so- antisocial, the, that someone um, can have those traits. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What forms, what, what, what makes up um, antisociality? What is, what, is, what is that? It's um, against the norm. So if you look at the DSM-5, the Diagnostical Statistical Manual, and look at things like antisocial personality disorder or oppositional defiance order, it's pushing against what's considered social norms. So it's what, what we'd commonly do. So punching somebody in the fact, so offering somebody, so if I want $10 off one of you and I said, um, can I borrow $10 and I'll pay you back over the next four weeks, I'll give you $2 and I really appreciate it, I'd get the $10 and my needs will be net. Or I could come up with a stick and go, Tim, give me $10 and I'll smack the shit out of you. Mm. I'd still get the $10. Mm. But one of them is antisocial and harmful and damages, and you're never going to speak to me again, and you're probably going to report me to somebody. Right. So the antisociality is not, I can't meet my names. I, I don't want to or can't or feel not obliged to meet my needs in social acceptable ways, so I'll go the other way. Where does that come from? You know, whether it is you've experienced it from a young age, whether you feel bullied or not looked after or not important or not cared for, whether you've been part of criminal families or people who've constantly broken rules, a dislike of authority, a general dislike of authority, um, being over-controlled and so wanting to fight against that can be part of it as well. Um, it's positive experiences. A lot of the young kids I see, you know, you talked about you know, um, um, Parkville and I used to run um, some of the treatment programs um, over in Parkville years and years ago um and they they get a sense of importance in small groups of other antisocial people whereas they're at school they're picked on they're not very clever they've got pretty damaged experiences at home they're not successful in school they're not really going to be successful in life and suddenly there's these people sitting around drinking cans of this and smoking weed who accept them and fuck them well fuck everybody else this is great this is what it is and there's a real connection then Mm. these people understand me they get me Mm. Mm. Of course, they turn on each other if they got in trouble. They don't get that part of the point. At that point, they feel connected. And when I was running the drug and alcohol programs, they would almost universally start with these small groups at parks smoking weed. And then they go on to the harder drugs. And of course, all the intimacy and connection they got from each other, the support would go as they got into heroin and meth because they aren't social drugs. Mm. You know, with marijuana, you're a bit doped up, you're young, you feel part of a pack, that's sort of it. But, you know, you're off your face on meth all the time. You're on heroin. It's not really, you know... There's other things going on for you neurologically at that point. So they, then these groups would split off or they do different drugs so they didn't spend time together. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know. Yeah, it makes me think, you know, this is a type of freedom, you know, trying to, you know, trying to move away from the conformity of the, the social norms. You, you're, you're exercising your freedom in many ways, but you're doing it in a way that's, that's harmful or at least... It, it's, 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 
it is harmful, but it doesn't feel it at the time. And for what they've got on offer in life, which often isn't very much, it makes perfect sense. Mm. They're not going into these relate these hanging around with these guys because they punch the shit out of them. They go around because they feel they feel safe. Yeah, humans are pack animals. They feel safe. They feel important. They feel part of something. Mm. I remember working with a guy in I won't say the area in 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 Melbourne, and he was constantly done for breaking into um, a local cricket club and stealing alcohol. And uh, he was a lower functioning guy. And um, and I said to him, you know, they never get caught. You do. You they don't bother going in. They send you in. I said, why do you go and steal it from me? He goes, well, it's the choice between I steal stuff for them and I hang around with them and I have friends or I have no friends. Mm-hmm. What, what would you do? And he's like, oh, he's about 13. I was like, you got me there. <laughs> so it was really, it, was, it made him feel safe. He didn't have much else on in his life. So these two guys would have a symbiotic relationship where he'd do all the crime and, uh, and they would take the, and they would make him feel good about himself. Mm. 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 It, it makes me think uh, when my experiences at Parkville were there was a unity there with, with a lot of the boys mm. um, and, and, and girls um, and, you know, everyone was, was quite well connected. There was a sort of a bit of a packed trust um, yeah. and it was interesting because as, as I was employed, you know, several years ago as a sort of justice officer there. So um, mm. there wasn't much sort of therapeutic um, backdrop to, to what I was doing. It was more yeah. to sort of monitor and, um, just sort of, uh, yeah, monitor was, was the main part of it. Sure. Um, and yeah, there was an incident that happened to me where I was um, quite badly uh, assaulted and it happened, you know, in a really sort of um, innocuous way. You know, it was basically in a, in a room and um, one of the you know, young boys, um, you know, I looked at him in a certain way and um, he was in a group of his peers in, um, and um, just... It was sort of, it, in hindsight, it was very unavoidable. You know, I was the only one in the room at the time with the, with the teacher. Yeah. And, um, you know, looking back, it's it's really sort of interesting um, how I have learned to reflect on it. You know, he he needed to do that in some respect because I could see that he he was he was trying to prove something to someone. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a family history of um, his, his, his siblings were also involved in the justice system with quite serious assaults and he was almost you know adding adding a link to the chain mm. and and I was part of that I was an object to him um and you know in 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 hindsight you know a, a day after when we when I had a reflection with him sat down with him um you know he, he was a different person he, yeah. he 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 was remorseful but he he he, he no longer wanted to harm me and he basically mm you know, said to me that, you know, that this is something that he felt he needed to do at the time. Yeah. That this was, this was a must. Mm. Um, and I just thought, you know, at, at, at that time, I thought, you know, that's changed my whole perspective on, um, you know, the, the justice system in, in a youth sense. I've, I've never felt so unsafe in that environment mm. compared to any police environment I've been in. Mm. And, um you know, you, you've got to wonder how um, those, those young boys are developing in that, in that space because, um, you know, when you've got that pack mentality, that unity together, yeah. you know, this is, this is the outcome. This is, this is what happens. You, you know? don't have to wonder. They've written reports on it. We know. Yeah. It's yeah. incredibly, the longer you're in youth justice, the chance of you going to adult prison just keeps exponentially, exponentially rising. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that's why if you, if you look at the sentences in the adult justice system, you tend to, tend to do at least two thirds of it. And then you get a third for remand for yeah. parole. Sorry. And in the youth one, it's 50% and they want you out as soon as possible Yeah, <laughs> because they know the longer you're in there, the more comfy you get and the more at home you feel. And if you feel that, you know, the institutional sense of importance and, um, you know, you, you feel somebody and you feel connected and you don't feel useless and you don't feel stupid because you're on amongst your peers, in inverted commas, and you go outside and, and all of that's too difficult and you have access and exposure to drugs and alcohol and people are picking on you and you have to wait for things and mm. it's a safer environment. Mm. These are almost universally traumatised kids, universally. It's, it's the, the one thing that really kicks in. And when you're traumatised, you go into threat mode. You have a, you know, um, uh, your radar and sensitivity to threat is on high all the time, which is exhausting on the body from a, you know, cortisol and adrenaline point of view, but it means you're constantly looking for threats. So you'll see it. So you see threat in the most innocuous things. You know, you can smile at them. What are you looking at? You're laughing at, you think I'm a prick. You know, it's an overreaction to it. You go, you know, <clears throat> you, 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 you see the sense of somebody mocking you much faster. Mm. You know, the sort of guy who ended up in prison for eight years pulling a gun on when I was in Port Phillip and he pulled a gun on another guy because um, he called him, and it, you know, it was a swear, you know, not a nice, but a swear word. And it's like, it's about respect. And I'm like, well, you know, what's I got to do? You got to pull a gun on him for that? So that's that sense of, then they put respect into fear. They mix respect and fear. They have to fear me. And if they don't fear me, I'm at threat. So I'll pull a gun and that way people will, inverted commas, fear, you know, respect me. And so, because it's a threat, it's a real threat. And their ego or their sense of self is so um, uh, superficial. Yeah. affected yeah. you know yeah. I remember another guy we worked with who went into um you know he felt his uh wife was um flirting with another guy and mm. rather than saying you know i don't appreciate this we got a relationship he beat the living shit out of this guy mm. because he wasn't respecting him whatever that means and went to prison for it and he was you know and he sat in his group of people we were talking about it, and he goes well what, what options do you have with him mm. what else yeah. can you do and i'm like options beating someone up or anything else i don't um yeah. i'd go for anything else yeah. but he said if i walked away then i'm not respected mm. i said what beating him up you're respected yeah did you think you're respected when the police turned up or do you think you're respected when you got your criminal system you think you're respected when you came out of prison you couldn't get a job Where, where's this respect and of course it's all in the mind and it's because they're angry and they feel badly treated and they dislike and they fear other people and fear themselves Mm. it's making me think the sort of connection point between sort of what you're talking about in the, in the juvenile justice settings and police in general because I think that that same fear or that same sensitivity to what's around and awareness is something that I experience and have experienced you know mm. during the police and since and that's that's not too dissimilar to a to a, to a, to a young boy to a, or to a 17 16 17 year old in in um you know you know justice system um you know, police, it's almost like, you know, police get called out to um, any incident. They're, they're, they're on, they're hypervigilant. They're, they're on alert. They're, they're fear responses. They're, they're human. And then you're jumping into another world where, you know, somebody is experiencing that very similar philosophy. The exact same thing on the yeah. other side. Yeah. And then their fear response also sometimes becomes excessive, like hmm. what happened in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a horrible mix and, um, you know, the work I did with the police, and I really enjoyed the, the work I did with the police and I think they're incredible people 
um, of what they do. Uh, and if you look at the report by, done by Peter Cotton, which is in the Mental Health Review, I think it was that was about 2018 as well. And he and he said one of the issues they've consistently got is they go you go out on 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 patrol, you go out on, uh, and you're working, and you have these really bad experiences where you're threatened or you're and you're exhausted physically and you're emotionally shattered, and you come back to the office and you know they would say when people people would say you don't talk about it, stiff up a lip, everyone just sort of move on with it, don't worry. And anyway, we're short on staff, Johnny, so can you head out again? Mm. And and they go in, and if you don't do that, there's they would feel this perception they were being judged or they weren't helping their friends out, and so. It wasn't about the individuals. I'm not blaming individuals. I'm saying the culture promoted this sense that you just have to move on with it. And yeah. of course, what you're doing is I've just been traumatized. What you can do, go out and get traumatized again. Yeah. Well, but, well, you get, but no, but now you've got to get, you know. And so, of course, me, me and a colleague of mine ran, ran uh, the first trauma group in Victoria Police uh, years ago in about again 2017 i think it was and it continues to be on a yearly basis and it was 12 people and some of the stories and some of the things these guys had held on to for years i'm talking 10 15 years of 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 how they'd hurt someone or been hurt or threatened and they were so embarrassed to tell them about it or they felt stupid or weak or they wouldn't get promoted yeah. or um and and sitting them and hearing these stories it was unbelievable so powerful mm. so powerful mm. Mm. yeah you go no, I just think it's amazing to think that echo, like the, the parallels, obviously they're, they're very different kinds mm. of trauma and threat, but they're happening on both sides of the Absolutely. police and the offenders. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you look, at the, look at the research of people when police officers shoot somebody mm. um, and everyone goes, oh, my God, you know, that person died. The, the trauma from the person who shot, and especially if the person died, is huge. Yeah. We never think about that because the other person died, therefore they win the, yeah. win the trauma war, whatever that means. They win the victim war because they're dead. They're not surprisingly, but people don't think actually there wasn't, it's not a movie. They don't get an enjoyment out of killing somebody. So that in itself leaves a huge um, sensitivity or vulnerability for them. So next time they pull their gun out, am I going to kill someone again? Yeah. No, that's the way the brain works. It looks for patterns, constantly looking for patterns. And it's constantly on the, the, the lookout for, for threat. We automatically do it. We cross the road. We don't go, oh, let's see what happens. You're on the road for threat. Mm. You're in a nightclub and you're seeing some you know, people over there or they're off their face or something. You're looking for threat. Yeah. You know, it's, it's all the time. We, it's, it's how we've managed to get as far as we have in evolution. It's because mm. we, so it's helpful, but it's also incredibly uh, damaging if it's not cared for. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm interested in, so when you talk about that sort of hypervigilance, mm. first thing I think is exhaustion. Yep. Very, it's it's a it's this sort of a, a mixture between it's an acute exhaustion and this sort of slow burning exhaustion. And what I've seen, it's really interesting how it affects different different police. Mm-hmm. Um, you know how it affected me, how it affected you know my um, my my sibling. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, and I'm talking in respect to the sort of the coldness that comes from it. It's almost this sort of duality, like this this this. Um, to survive is this very sort of military, cold, calculated response to what they're seeing. Mm-hmm. And when you're talking to them about it, it is like they are almost telling you a story, but it's the narrative so disconnected. It's almost like they're telling a story about somebody else. Yep. And the, 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 the emotional essence is, is not there. And, and, and when I've tried to prompt, years since I've left, but when yeah. I've tried to prompt that. Yeah. Which, which you would have, you know, uh, you know over your period of big place, 
it's, it's, it's very difficult. There's a lot of resistance there. It's, it's, uh, because because there is a and, and this is a human belief. I, I take this out police or any first responders or anybody I've ever worked with that if I open up and tell you where my biggest vulnerability is, my biggest fear, that I will collapse inside myself like a dying star and never recover. Yeah. So I will never come back from this. Mm. And I will always mm. be that damaged. What you, of course, you recognize it with the trauma is you're removing the, the, the thorn from the poor to allow it to heal. But what they feel is if I lose that, what happens if I never heal? Yeah. And yeah. so that's why trauma is so is such a complex art to deal with, a complex therapeutic modality, but so, so important. Mm. And we know from the, you know, trauma therapy works. It's very, very effective, but it has to be driven by the client. Mm. Has to be driven by the client, readiness mm. to do it. You can never push it. And so if somebody's not ready, they're not ready. That's the way it is. You encourage them, of course, but you never push. So from a crisis point of view, so say a, 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 a police witness has seen um, mm-hmm. a road accident, um, what's, what's the best practice to understand and connect to a group of officers that have just witnessed something? Maybe let's just say for the first time um, they're yep. quite new and they've just, they've just come across a road fight accident with a fatality or severe, severe injury, yep. whatever it is. What, what's the sort of general practice? Because there's a lot of research out there that says that, that the crisis intervention just stuff does, does not work because it's, it's... There was old practices that you have to force people to start talking about it, which are long mm-hmm. since dead. So Psychological mm-hmm. First Aid is, you know, the Phoenix um, organisation of mm-hmm. Melbourne talk this very much. But just to step back from that a little bit is... Part of the training at the academy is we started creating a psychological language around this stuff mm. so that people would be understanding this was a likely response and what would it mean and, and you're likely to feel embarrassed or ashamed or you may be disconnected, you may laugh at something horrible or cry at something beautiful. But you have these weird sort of personal uh, emotional reactions to things that don't make sense to you. Mm. Um, so by giving them that language and understanding that's likely to happen. So when when it first happens, we hoped that they're already prepped intellectually to understand that's a likelihood. So that's number one to say. Part of the training we did started from the moment they started the academy through mm. to the time they ended their career. We didn't just wait to the first instant and go, oh, we're going to tell you something. You yeah, know? Yeah. So number one, create the language, create the literacy around that stuff, do the training packages, work with the managers so that they understand how influential the sergeants and seniors are, how influential they are to those constables. Because if they get, because they see them as gods, Mm. that drain but, but they see them as very important important to their careers and as a really good safety mechanism they've often been around a long time they know they know the system really well and so they're safe people to talk to so if you've got a sergeant who says hey it's okay mate you know it's this happens to us all or you've got someone who says back in my day we never struggled mm-hmm. what are you going to have so you know number one that how much the influence secondly once they've got that language you go um that you're turning up at a, a scene and we're saying to them um psychoeducational hey how you feeling does anyone gonna give you a lift home are you okay what's going on with you when you first in a traumatic situation you're likely to be in the midst of the trauma reaction so it's a a mixture of cortisol and adrenaline running through your body um, which is trying to keep you safe so you're often disconnected i need to know this i've got to get this got my paperwork done this this is it at that no point do you want to say now tell me about your trauma reaction (laughs) okay because they're going to go who the hell are you (laughs) what are you talking about yeah so um uh, so you're educating them. You're making them feel safe. Do you need a glass of water? Do you have something to eat? You've been on your feet for 12 hours, mate. 
do you need is there someone else if you think you know if you if, is there someone else who works with you really well you trust that i can bring along to help you do you need someone to ring your wife for you have you got to pick up your kids so you're going for the real pragmatic nature of how do i keep you feeling safe and not concentrating on trying to run your life while you go through this traumatic this um uh, this highly elevated period once you've gone through that usually between 24 and 72 hours you're looking at somebody's adrenaline going down and then their brain tries to processing and they're like hang on a sec you nearly died oh hang on a sec you saw someone who died now i want to make sense of it just happens to be two in the morning and you can't sleep Mm. so then you have the processing oh my god what's it mean to me if i died and my my wife's just about to give birth and i haven't said goodbye to my friends and i've never been a good person and whatever else is going on for you suddenly these things are magnified Mm. we come in usually post that first one and checking with them over the next day two days three days to see are they returning as most people do to their normal level of functioning. Hmm. And that's what we're hoping to do. Are you going back to your normal routines? Humans are very routine driven. You want them to go back to their normal routines because that's where they feel safe and that demonstrate things are going well. Hmm. Never go to someone, I've noticed you've been going to work five days a week and you're really happy with your wife. What's going on with you? You know, that's normal. But if someone says, I notice you never go to work anymore or you're working 12 hours a day and you're constantly arguing or you don't take phone calls from me, that's outside of the normal, abnormal outside of the normal and therefore that would indicate a behavioral because everyone will say and certainly in the cops they go oh yeah so i'm okay all good all good Mm. and i'd say prove it tell me about your routine Mm. because your words are meaningless if your behavior is changing words are easy i can fly prove it my arms are tired i can't but tomorrow i'll definitely be able to fly in my shape it's rubbish Mm. So you want to see what's changed. You want to talk to their managers. You want to talk to their friends. You want to see colleagues. You want to talk to their wives. You want to check in. And once those routines are back, you would say that it's unlikely that that trauma is then going to perpetuate, that they have gone returned to their normal. That's what you're hoping for. And if it hasn't, maybe you're looking at short-term counselling, maybe you're looking at long-term counselling. Maybe there's something of another vulnerability outside of that we were unaware of, um, which um, uh, needs to be explored as well. Mm. what if the routine is a facade so what if what if they're you know i mean just personal experience and speaking yep. to other police what if the the routine that you go back to or the because that's very much i'm i'm back to normal i'm back to the way i was it hasn't affected me um can can routine be a facade can it can it be actually someone is using a, a structure to um almost sort of squash down their emotional pain repress of course yeah absolutely yeah. but we're not mind readers no so there is limitations what we can do but you will usually find when people are just um, uh, repress emotions they can't switch them back on and off so i'm repressing emotions that's fine in the police mm. but you go home and you say good night to your wife or your kids and you don't want to talk to them or you yeah. want to play computer games all night or watch movies all night and you get frustrated at every little thing they do you suddenly you suddenly then you know, you're, that isn't your routine. Mm. I don't want to tell my wife because it'll burden her. Well, that's then that's out your routine, is it? So yes, you can, but it will play out. We suggest in another pervasive area, in another area. Yeah. But you're but you're right. I can't go around to Copper's house and say to his wife, "By the way, how's your love life going? How's things working out?" He's still okay. You know, I just want to check if his trauma's okay. You know, so there is limits on what we're able to attend and what we can. But you usually find what would usually happen is their mates would ring in and go look, I shouldn't do this, but Johnny's really struggling at work at the moment. That's what would usually happen. Mm-hmm. Somebody would dob them, dob them in, make it sound negative. Somebody would tell us and we'd go, hey, come on, just have a chat. And mm-hmm. then we would get there. Mm-hmm. 
But again, you had to be part of an, I mean, this is what the Peter Cotton Review tried to do is the culture of policing and the culture of the support staff, their other staff, the blue shirts and the, the managers was massive in creating that safety. If they felt safe, they would talk to you. If they didn't feel safe, there was no way they're going to talk to you. Mm. If you were surrounded by people who thought, oh, psychology is a load of bullshit. What you need to do is just go out and play some footy and drink some beers and you'll be fine. That was what they were going to do. And for some people, maybe that works. Mm-hmm. But not all the time and not for every person. Mm. So is, is there a possibility that if someone goes into that, let's just say they go back to routine and yep. you're, you're communicating with them and they've gone into this sort of narrative cold space, yep. but they're still doing their job day to day, they're still functioning at a sort of a, at a, at a, at a noticeable high level, yep. um, they're still responding. Ticking all the boxes, but all the boxes. not emotionally there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and they spend two, three, four, five, six, seven years and yep. the, the years build. Yeah. The, the, the potential to, you know, whether they retire or whether they're forced to retire, whatever, whatever the circumstances are, did you see much of the sort of deterioration near the end of someone's career? Or, 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 or... You, you saw cumulative, look, I mean, the DSM only brought cumulative trauma and first responder trauma in within the last few iterations of it. So it's a brand new thing. And what that is, is that sort of sense that you're constantly being re-traumatised because of the nature of your role. Because yeah. it's not normal to be around trauma all the time. It's just not a normal job, is it? Um, um, you know, you'd say, oh, yeah, but you're a paramedic. That's what you do. Yes, you are. But there are still, you know, there's a difference between some old lady falls over and you go and help her and somebody's chopped in half. There's still trauma within a normal range of, of work. And the same with policing. Some things you do with policing is really good. And some things are, are very easy and solved very fast. And some of them aren't and they're never solved. So there's trauma within even those normal environments. So, um, uh, yes, you can continue to do that. What I would generally see as they got towards the end of their career is their relationships outside of policing would get worse and that they would form an identity that they were a police officer first and then John Smith second. Yeah, right. And I always say, Mm. I'm William Wainwright as a psychologist. I'm not a psychologist who is William Wainwright. Yeah. So my identity is not my work. My identity is my family and my friends and playing instruments and loving life and doing silly things and that. And I happen to be a psychologist. When police officers would fuse with their identity, then what would happen is they got towards the end of their career and the opportunities were drying up or just less options. Um, then they would go, well, what's next then? Who's going to respect me? Who's going to talk to me? Who am I if I'm not saving lives? And it, did you see the same with inmates when they got out or, you know? Absolutely. Your- trying to support them to change and then well who the fuck is am i without crime what's yeah yeah well and what's the point i remember a guy i was working with for ages and he was a long-term criminal (laughs) and he was he was a big drug dealer and he he goes you get paid what do you get paid and i said not enough mate and then and he said well i own i own two houses and i said congratulations i said but i don't have people running through my houses and threatening my kids to kill them so you can have your two houses. I'd prefer to have a sense of safety within myself. And he, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. anyway, he then later on in the group, later on in the week, and uh, we worked with him. He said, I got a job when I got out once as a market and I was, and, and it was paid terribly and I enjoyed it. And I felt I was contributing real money, not black, what they call it black money or dirty money. Um, and it was real money. And I was bringing it home. And I said, what happened? He goes, after I got a part-time, it was great. And then I got a full-time job. They did police check and they got rid of me. And I went, and literally the next day I felt I was useless to family. 
guess what I did? Straight back to drug dealing. And he was back inside for eight years. Yeah. So he was, he, he, and he said, and you, you, after, you know, besmirching me and my wonderful life, he recognized that actually not having this horrible chaos around it, this constant threat, um, and having to live the whole thing, constantly having to take drugs and act a certain way and be tough and never seeing your kids because you're out all night. There was no, there was no, he was in his 40s, you know, wasn't a young guy. Um, it wasn't worth it. But when he tried to go right, that fell apart as well. So he just thought, what's the point? Mm. it's a real it's a real thing it's a real thing you go back to what you know and you can make more money selling drugs in one day than i probably can a month and also like question around walking into the unknown and it's not just with people criminals like you know if you're leaving a relationship where you're getting off drugs yep and you're you're used to that um cycle um and yeah you know how do people go over that line into the the deep void of nothingness so that I don't know what's going to be there yeah I used to work with when I worked at neighbor justice center I've done lots of little other jobs on the side and I would talk about and they would see these guys in their 50s who'd been you know small-time criminals and heroin you generally heroin addicts for some reason um and that and they were just sort of shuffling through life they were they were ghosts of people that existed once upon a time but they had nothing else they weren't very interesting. They'd not really had any experiences. The only thing they'd done is taken drugs, which is really boring to talk about unless you're taking drugs. They didn't yeah. travel. They didn't read any books. They're not talking about Othello or Shakespeare. They're talking, remember we got off my face? And I'm like, no, I don't remember that. And I don't want to. Oh, what else have you done? Uh, I'm going to go and get my, you know, wait for when I get payday, when I get my doll check, and then I'll go down and get my, my methadone and, and yeah. then I'll sit around and watch TV. They're, they're, they're shadows of existence. Mm. The people that once were, and it's really sad. And of course, they because they were once the 19, 20-year-old in Port Phillip in Barwon, who mm. was tough as hell. And they were once more important, and now they're nothing. Like ancient gunfighters left in mm. the world. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, and it's, there's no real, I mean, if I had the easy answers, I wouldn't be sitting in a crappy shed with a, a terrible old Mac. I'd be living in a golden uh, mansion somewhere. Um, but it is, it's a really complex thing. What we do know, what we do know is, you know, for policing, uh, the care and support and allowing them that uh, buffer zone and that, that care and interest and educating people about the importance of it is going to influence that a new generation of police coming through won't have to feel so you can't talk about it. That was, and I think we made, if, if I, if there was any lasting legacy from what I did, and even just starting up the first trauma group, we showed it was important and they, we got incredibly good feedback from those groups, incredibly good. And I said, go and tell everybody because you have a good meal, you, you know, somebody will come back and have it. So tell them about the good meal, you know? So I think that was the stuff that's really important. You can't stop the fact that people are going to be traumatized and they can't stop the fact they've got to be out there on the road and seeing these horrendous things happen, but you can increase the knowledge and understanding of how important it is to care for yourself. And, and as in the, as into the offending stuff, you know, it's, it's the most cliched statement ever. You've got to put the money into when people are young. You've got to help families so they don't grow up with this sense of nothingness. And the only way you can save yourself or protect yourself is being harmful mm. and screw authorities and hate people, you know, and, and, and then create the cycle of that. You have to put the money in early and you have to help support. You know, we've got billion, millions of dollars to open prisons over and over again, you know, and if prisons is such a great thing at stopping people offending, why do we keep building more? We should be building less because prisons are working so well. 
that didn't have the prisons in Victorian time. Yeah. Didn't have prisons back in, you know, King Arthur times. They had a couple of prisons, didn't they? So it doesn't seem to historically be working a brilliant job as, as rehabilitating people at the very least. They're a necessity evil, but you can't police. And the police will tell me this. You can't police your way out of crime. No way. So you're looking at systems outside of crime. You're looking at education, health, I assume. Other things that people can, yeah. Well, you're looking, you're looking at giving people alternatives in life. You're, yeah. you're creating that there are other people you can, if you're being harmed, speak up about it. We may be able to help you. The authority isn't all bad to get you. The, you're hopefully um, in, in, um, inspiring and um, investing in new people to come in and offer self-help, social workers, psychologists, counsellors, whatever you need, that these people can add that buffer room and that safety, lived experience people. You know, that you can, they're not, that, that it becomes the norm. It's the norm to talk about it. And I think, you know, I'm 50 years old and there's no doubt when I was 20, none of this stuff was talked about. So even in my life, I've seen a, and it's not just because I'm dipped in psychology, but, you know, I've seen a massive change in the way people talk about reaching out for help. It's hugely better than when I, in the 80s, hugely better. I would be, I'd, I'd no, I don't think anyone could argue that. They've, I'm not saying that the society hasn't tried to invest they have but there's a long way to go mm. you know we didn't recognize family violence let's face it you couldn't rape your wife in 1997 because it, because she was married to her so we've come a long way in a very short mm. period of time the laws have changed and the understanding you know we've had um you know royal commissions institutionalized abuse we've had royal commissions into um family violence we we know there's people much more intelligent me that know what we should be doing but it takes investment not just money, investment in people, investment in resources, investment in um, informing and caring for people. Mm. And that takes, that is hard because you're changing culture. Culture's a hell of a thing to change. Yeah. 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 It's, we're definitely on the way up, without a doubt. I, yeah. I wouldn't have been in this field if I felt I was getting nowhere 20 years and I'll go back to running a nightclub. Yeah, actually, that's probably one of my last questions I'm, I'm sort of interested in is, You've you've had a sort of a long career, you know, twenty plus years. What makes you, especially the, the perpetrator work? Yep. What what make what makes you? I don't know. Effective is the right word, but what makes you work in that space? What attracts you to that work? Um, well, if I if I was to circle back to the very start, I don't understand why working with an offender is any different than working with someone with autism or somebody who's got an eating disorder. They're incredibly resistant to treatment, or chronic depression. They're resistant to treatment. They, they need to learn better. The difference is they only hurt themselves. They don't. They hurt the families around them. They do. So, so what is the difference? I'm, I'm engaging somebody that I'm able to reduce the way they view, the, change the way they review the world, that they will stop harming themselves and others. To me, I see it as exactly the same thing. Yeah. I'm not endorsing their behavior by being engaging with them. No. I'm endorsing, I'm working with them so they can better understand and let go of some of the the shit and the anger and the shame they feel. I've never met an offender who goes, thank God I've made everyone miserable throughout my whole life. Well done me. Yeah. They're not champions of this. There are antisocial psychopathic people, but they're very, I find them the very minimum. Mm. You know, the majority of people are pretty embarrassed about the way they've carried themselves through life that I work with. Mm. You know, not just because they're going to be punished, but because they realise there's, there's no end, there's no... There's no gains from it. You're never going to be accepted by society while you do this. Or the, the people you're going to be accepted by are a slowly dwindling people who either want to get married and don't want to be part of this world or in prison or are dead. Mm. So, you know, your cheer squad's slowly reducing as well as you get older. Mm. So 
I never stop enjoying it for that reason, because I actually find if you pay respect to people and create an environment for change and safety and hope that they engage. The one thing I always get is people say, well, how do you know they don't just do it again? I'm like, I don't. I don't, but I can't create hope if I'm sitting there going, he's probably going to fuck somebody later on. Anyway. <laughs> That's not helping, is it? So I, I don't sit there going, I'm not you know, so naive. I think that people don't go on the fin, but I go, did I give them the opportunity to express themselves in a way that they could live a more adaptive, healthy life? Absolutely. Did they then go and do it? Well, maybe, maybe not. That's a choice. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you I'll, another story where I used to work in a prison called Langi Kalpa, which is a farm prison up towards Ararat. And I used to work with this guy who um, had, had a lot of, um, I don't know what the fences are, did a lot of fences. And um, I did this activity where you do an empty chair and you get them to talk to their victims. There's mm. not real victims, obviously, it's an empty chair. And, um, and he talked about it and he got very emotional. In his, and, he, you know, and everyone was, you know, said, well done, well done. But, you know, you're always sitting there going, do you think he's just playing for the cameras? <laughs> anyway. Fast forward, I don't know, I'd, I'd maybe three three years, and I'm up doing, uh, I'm up towards that area riding a motorbike because I've just got my motorbike license, and I stopped at a cafe and I jumped out with a friend of mine and I was getting a pie or something, and this guy jumps out of a car and runs to me, and goes, "Your name is William Wainwright," and I said, "Yeah," and I didn't recognise him at all, and he goes, "I just want you to know, I've never offended again." Okay, I went. What's your name? And he said, <laughs> John Smith. And I go, I saw, I went, you're the, and he goes, yeah, 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 yeah. And some of his offenses were on a, on a computer. And he gets his laptop in the back of his car and he goes, do you want me to show you? <laughs> <laughs> I want you to show me that you haven't offended my computer, but I really appreciate it. And then he goes, you know, you know, thank you. And he got in the car and drove, never saw him again. Wow. That's about 14 years ago. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so things like that make you go, it was worth yeah. it. Yeah, that actually reminds. Oh, I've got a follow up story to that. It reminds me of a story um, where I was working with it with a young boy in in Parkville, and we started off in a really like the, the tussle was real. He was very abusive, very threatening, and we we weren't we weren't connecting very well. And over over the months that I was there, um, we formed a bit of a sort of a, a friendship. We formed a bit of a, a, a connection. And um, to the point where, you know, he was, we were sort of trying to plan what he's going to wear to court and we're trying to sort of make sure that he's presentable and he was really nervous about it. And um, I didn't know, he said to me, I'll, I'll never, I'll never be back. I'll never, I'll never, I'll never, ever, ever come back. And his, his offences were, were, were quite um, brutal for, for a young man. And yeah. so I didn't see him again from that point. And then it would have been, um, oh, it would have been four or five years later. I'm walking um, local to where I live and I see him and very, very tall lad. And he looks at me and I look at him and he just smiles and he goes, never been back, mate. And just, <laughs> and just keeps walking. And uh, it was it was a thrill moment because it only happened, uh, you know, three, four seconds. And I'm just, and I was with my partner at the time and she's like, why are you, you like, what's wrong with you? And I'm just like, that's, that's, you know, I never thought I'd have an experience where, you know, it tr- transcends time and, yeah. you know. And I think being genuine and authentic in our connections with these people and giving them alternatives, it's sometimes going to work. Sometimes it won't. No. You don't do it because it always works. You do it because it could work. And, if, and you do it because the alternative is doing nothing. And that doesn't work. We know for definite. Mm. Yeah. Yeah.
Thank you so much, William. No problem. Great to chat. Thanks, guys, for listening. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. Feel free to shoot us an email or send us a DM to our Instagram at Making Sense of Chaos, all one word. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.